If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Galatians chapter 1 should already be marked for you. Galatians chapter 1. So we start a brand new study. If it felt like we were in the book of Luke for a long time, well, it, we were in the book of Luke for a long time. So uh, some feelings uh, are not accurate. That, actual, that one would be. But I'm excited to start a brand new study. Um, we we kind of have two almost brand new studies. Proverbs, we only started a month ago, so we started Proverbs on Wednesday night. Come on out if you need wisdom in your life, and that would be everybody. And uh, then this book of Galatians, um, a powerful book. Like I said, it's a great book uh, when you think about freedom and independence, and if you want to be set free in life, Jesus is the only way to be set free from any bondage or any chains. Um, but today's message will be a little different because when you open up a study, I want to make sure that we just have the found, we all have the same foundations of this book. And then we will kind of, if I was to describe our study today versus where it will go in the book of Galatians, um, some have said about Paul, in this book, Paul has his war paint on. He's bringing some serious, direct truth. Um, so today, we'll be, you ever been in a roller coaster? You have the kind of the ride up? That's kind of today. Starting next Sunday, right on into Galatians we go. Because Paul doesn't waste any time getting into it. Uh, but these first few verses, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 to start. And that's all we're going to cover. We're taking the Lord's Supper today. So I just want to give you an introduction to the book. Make sure everyone has the same understanding of why the book, uh, why Paul wrote this letter and, uh, and the intent of this letter, and then we'll start to look, uh, starting next week, um, at the details of what it is that he writes. So verses 1 through 5 of your Bibles are open, Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you. And peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. That hasn't changed at all, has it? Still the same. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so can we get a Bible study out of that? Yes, we can. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you again for this time in your word. May your Holy Spirit anoint these words. May your Holy Spirit open every eye, every ear, every heart. Lord, we pray that you would drive out anything in this room that would distract us from the power and the presence of Jesus. Lord, right now, if anyone feels even the slightest bit of distraction or uncomfort, Lord, right now you'd release that and they could solely hear the words of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you have something really important to say, you need to make sure that your audience is listening. If there's an authority or a foundational truth beyond yourself, it sets the table and the hope your audience will accept facts 
and evidence regardless of what they think of you personally. Right? A judge can do this in a courtroom. What you, no matter what you think about the judge, there's an authority behind that. And this is the Apostle Paul's focus in these opening verses. This epistle, or letter, so if you hear me use the word epistle, this letter is written to address a cancer that has come to the churches in Galatia that has introduced the Mosaic law as an addition. Certainly the Mosaic law is in the Scriptures. But they had introduced the Mosaic law as an addition to faith in Christ as essential to being saved. You know, the gospel is now going out to Gentiles, you see. These are a lot of Gentiles coming to Christ now. And what, what it had ended up happening is, is uh, men from Jerusalem had come up and reintroduced all the law that Paul and the apostles had never introduced. And, and those that were the evangelists like uh, Simon of Cyrene and others, they had not introduced this, but they had come back up and said, you've got to be circumcised, and you've got to start doing these dietary things. You've got to start observing these days or you can't be saved. And Paul, who formerly trusted in the law, will confront this head-on as a completely different gospel and an affront to the sufficiency of Christ's blood atonement. This false teaching that has crept into Galatia appears to have touched several churches across a wider geographic area. So not just one church, but several churches across a wider geographic area. And uh, this is also um, the one epistle where Paul addresses churches in more than one city. So it'd be kind of like addressing Richmond and Mechanicsville and Hopewell and Midlothian and all these different areas around. Uh, this is also the only epistle where he gives no commendation to the recipients. But Paul, his focus here is clear. It's determined. And there won't be any mincing of words in this epistle. God has sent him. Think about what God has done in Paul's life. God has sent Paul not only into the world to preach the lost, but also that he's to be a protective shepherd of the sheep. And these opening words, they're brief, but they strongly convey the source of this letter as being the Lord God himself. Do you understand that? Paul's opening words is that these words are directly from God. Paul's like, they're not from me. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, A Reminder from God. A Reminder from God. I need God to anoint this clicker one of these days. But it's good for comic relief almost every Sunday, so. I, I use it during the week, it works great. I use it on Sunday, and like the enemy's like putting a, some sort of uh, contrasting signal between. But anyway, in James 1.17, it says this. You've probably heard this verse before if you've been in church any time. Every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father. You and I can rest assured, if it's good and perfect, it comes from God. If it's good and perfect, rain, whether we complain about it or not, is actually a good gift from God, right? Ask a farmer. Way too much rain can be really problematic. 
So it has to be good and perfect. The gospel that originally came to Galatia was the pure gospel of grace. The original gospel that actually planted the churches there was the true gospel. But things, but then others came up and started to sow seeds of, you need this too, you need this too, you need this too. But things that can come to us from sources other than God, some are directly from the enemy, some are from this world, and some come from our own minds and our own efforts. Human effort's a real problem in this area. Think about this. You ever, you ever had someone say, this is a golden opportunity, right? Let's say somebody was so close to getting saved, and they get a call, and they said, you've got a triple job promotion. We want to move you to Los Angeles tomorrow, and they walk away from Jesus. See, a golden opportunity that keeps a person from coming to Christ isn't a gift from God. And so-called, and a so-called gospel that turns people from Christ alone isn't from God either. So in this short greeting, Paul affirms to the Galatians and for us what is from God, and if it's believed, if it really is from God and it's believed and received, we'll receive God's life-changing and life-giving truth. If you have any doubt that Paul by the Holy Spirit, is employing the authority of God and the centrality of Jesus as the single source of grace and salvation for this letter. If you have any doubt that that's who Paul is putting the backdrop of who this authority is coming from, take a look at these five verses. I've kind of pulled things out so you can see them a little more clearly. You notice everything in red, bold, and larger letters? Every thing in red, bold, thick letters, is the name of God or reference to God. Twelve times, if you take kind of the compound names like Jesus Christ, 15 times in just five verses, if you take each individual word, Jesus Christ, God, Father, Him, God, Father, Lord, Jesus Christ, Himself, He, God, Father, whom? You think Paul's trying to make a point here? As he opens up the letter, Paul's saying, this is from God, it's not from me. So if you get, if the Galatians, if you feel a little bit constrained by what you're about to hear, know that it's from the Lord. All this is from God. See, our opinion, our opinion, I tell people this all the time when I share my faith with someone, my opinion doesn't matter. Paul's opinion doesn't matter. Do you realize that? Our opinion, Paul's opinion, is really irrelevant on anything. But what God says is infinitely more than just relevant. Wouldn't you agree? If your opinion and my opinion is irrelevant, and in the scheme of eternity it is, in the scheme of who determines what truth is, us or God, our opinion is irrelevant. But God's opinion, far more than relevant, no, it's the way, it's the truth, it's the life. This epistle that we'll be studying over the next several months, if our ears are open, if our hearts are soft, it has the power to transform us, even if you're already saved. It has the power to transform us and far beyond us in this room, well outside of this place. 
This book was instrumental in Martin Luther. Remember, he uh, nailed his thesis there to the door there in Wittenberg. It was instrumental in Martin Luther, the reformer, leaving behind a works-based effort and running to the open arms of Jesus. This book of Galatians had a huge impact on him. He said of Galatians, this is my epistle. I am wedded to it. It has been referred to as the Magna Carta of the early church, this book that we're reading. This book declares unequivocally that salvation is by faith and faith alone and Jesus and Jesus alone. John Wesley, when he sought to see a revival in England, guess what? He went out and started preaching Galatians all over England. J. Vernon McGee, he um, born in the early 1900s, he passed away in 1988. Remember, some of you probably remember hearing J. Vernon McGee on the radio with his Bible bus and his heavy Texas accent. He said this, he said, in a sense, I believe this epistle has been the backbone and the background for every great spiritual movement and revival that has taken place in the past 1900 years. And my friend, it will be the background for many other revivals. I would like to see the Spirit of God move in our land today. I would like to hear the epistle to the Galatians declared to America. I believe it would revolutionize lives. That's my prayer for us in this study. A move of the Spirit that revolutionizes and transforms lives. Now, when the Lord put Galatians on my heart, I hadn't studied some of the things that I just read to you. I didn't know it was so formative in the minds of people that have preached it for revival. I mean, I, I, I did know about Martin Luther's impact and other things, but I, it, the more you look at it, you realize, wow, this book really, God has given us this study, Calvary Richmond, for such a time as this. What he'll be preparing, I'd say it's the midpoint of the year, we're starting it right in the middle. We don't know what's going to come in the next six months. We might be right in Galatians when we need it most. God wants us to hear what he said to these churches and he's still saying to us today. I'd like us to look briefly at six truths from Paul's greeting. Uh, but before that, let me give you a, a quick background on the Galatians that Paul was writing to. So this, if you're taking a look at this map, um, obviously that's Europe. The Galatians, we get the word Gaul. Galatians. They originally came from what would be modern-day France, but they weren't French because this is going back hundreds of years B.C. Uh, so the original, if you hear the word Celtic, you think kilts and all that kind of stuff, right? You hear the word Celtic, the original Celts or Celtic peoples came from Central Europe. They then went to places like the British Isles and to places like Ireland, but not only that, this is where, see this yellow spot? That's where all the original Celtic people came from. They were on both sides of the Alps. So this is hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. The Celtic people all came. Uh, if, you look at the seven son, if you look at the sons of uh, Noah, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth had seven sons, and we believe that seven sons of Japheth is what populated Europe. Most of Ham's descendants populated Africa. Most of Shem's descendants populated the Middle East and the Far East. And there was a little bit of crossover with all three brothers. But generally speaking, that's kind of how the three sons of Noah were. But right here in the center, that would have been the Celtic people. And as they expanded out, then you get the lighter green. That's the, the, where they started to head 
down into Spain, across Europe, and all up into the British Isles, where you see the very dark green. That, see right there, near Normandy and France, up there in Northern Ireland, that far side of England, where the very dark green is, Celtic languages are still spoken even today. So if you go to those little, if you travel to Europe, only in parts of France, parts of England, and parts of Ireland, you can still hear Celtic languages spoken. But at one point, they were across the entire span of all of that green. Well, one group got, because they were fierce warriors, got hired as mercenary soldiers to actually go serve in central Turkey. They liked the weather so much, they stayed. And they became an ethnicity right there in the middle of Turkey. So when you see Turkish people that actually pop up with blue eyes and blonde hair and stuff, they're coming from this lineage, and you have this all over the world. If you like to study this kind of stuff, I actually do enjoy this kind of things, but I will move on from here. But nevertheless, <laughs> this gives you an idea of where the Galatian people, that's where Gaul, uh, and so France was later called Gaul when, when the Roman Empire conquered what was modern-day France, which is not the same. France had many kind of crossovers and many different people coming that contributed to what France and the melting pot of France is today. But nevertheless, Gaul was what the Roman Empire conquered. So when Rome had its empire at its height, this is the height of the Roman Empire, Galatia actually became a distinct province. It was actually called the province of Galatia, just like you would have other provinces down in the, in the Holy Land and in North Africa, each of these Roman provinces. So when Paul was traveling through Galatia, it had become not just an ethnicity. Most of the ethnicity was in the north part of Galatia as far as ethnic Galatians or Celtic background, but the whole area there became a Roman province. So it would have its own Roman uh, uh, leader and uh, all that would report up to Rome. Then, as Paul travels through this area, um, many people kind of segment Galatia into a North Galatia and South Galatia. Now we can kind of understand that because in Virginia, we definitely consider Northern Virginia a different world, <laughs> right? And yet we're all Virginia. You go to the rest of the world, they say you're from Virginia. In Virginia, they're not in Northern Virginia. They can have their traffic and they're weird up there and blah, you know, whatever else. I'm kidding. We love them. If you're from Northern Virginia, we welcome you <laughs> to God's part of Virginia. But you had North Galatia and South Galatia, and then Paul spent the majority of his time, we don't know for sure that he ever even went up into Northern Galatia, he perhaps did, uh, but he definitely spent time down here in South Galatia in these different churches, Antioch, Pisidia, and helped plant them, poured into them, and no doubt people from those churches fanned out and other churches were planted in North Galatia as well. So when he says to the churches, plural of Galatia. He's speaking to all the churches that are in that Galatian area now. And again, the same cancer of the subversive nature of adding to the gospel was taking place across that province. Now, we want to look at these truths, if you can advance that. We want to start first with what Paul states in verse 1. What I've titled, Our Calling. Our calling. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through men. 
but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Luke, in Luke 6.13, we are way back in our study there, uh, it said, when it was day, speaking of Jesus, he called his disciples himself, and from then he chose 12, and he, who? Jesus, also named them apostles. We won't get into it today. It's, it's okay for people to use the word apostle today in a certain sense as far as I understand the term as far as church planting and stuff like that. But in the purest sense of the word, there were only 12. Now, you can have apostle-type ministries. In other words, apostles go out, they plant churches, all of that. But that's just one part. When we get into uh, verses um, uh, 11 through 19, we'll talk about what the qualifications of an apostle were, and no one today meets those distinct qualifications. But Paul was an apostle. That's why he's making such a strong argument here, because to be an apostle was such a special role from God. Jesus named the 12. They weren't just, there was many other disciples, but only 12 apostles. Remember that, right? The rest of them were not apostles. He named 12 of them apostles. And Paul, in most of his letters, he mentions his call to apostleship, but here in Galatians, he makes his most emphatic declaration of being chosen for this role. He makes the most emphatic declaration in this, in this book here. Now, Paul, of course, he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus named the other 11 apostles, right? He wasn't even saved then. He was younger than them at the time, but he wasn't saved. He wasn't with Jesus. Paul's call would come later. In 1 Corinthians 15, 18, this is what Paul writes. Then last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. Paul understood that his calling was outside the normal time of when the other apostles were called. An apostle is a divine calling. It's a special role designated by Jesus himself. It's much like, would you all agree with me that Moses didn't call himself? Matter of fact, we know Moses actually said, I'd like to hang the phone up, please, when God came to him, right? We would all agree Moses did not call Moses. He was not saying, you know what I'd like to see today? A burning bush. It never crossed his mind. Moses didn't call Moses. David didn't call David. He was out there in the sheep. He had no idea that Samuel's walking around looking to, who am I supposed to anoint today? David's calling came from God. David, call, David was called to be the king of Israel. Moses was called to be the deliverer. And Paul was called to be an apostle, not from men, not approved by men. God didn't say, hey, you other 11, you guys okay with this? Is there anyone in the church? We would like a board vote on Paul, please. Did you know that didn't happen? There was no committee called. On a dusty road to Damascus, God says, you're going to be the 12th apostle. In Paul's case, not only was he not approved by men, surely in Paul's case, he wasn't even considered by men. Let me tell you what people were not saying about Paul in the early days of the church. I can guarantee you this is what they were not saying about Paul in the early days after Jesus ascended back to heaven. They weren't saying this. You know who would make a really good apostle? A great replacement for that false prophet, Judas? Paul the persecutor. That would be the guy. That's a guy that I hope God calls him to be an apostle. You know the one that the Pharisee that hates Jesus? 
the one that's killing and imprisoning Christians, that would be a perfect apostle. This is not what the early church was thinking. They were shocked. But Jesus chose Paul suddenly, dramatically, unexpectedly, and out of time, a different time than the other 11. Now, I know that, by the way, we'll, we'll talk about this perhaps a little bit in the next uh, two studies or whatever, um, Matthias was chosen when they drew straws in the book of Acts. I, I'm agree, I agree with other theologians that don't believe that Matthias was called by God to be the 12th apostle. That was men stepping in saying, we've got to fix this quick. The Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen on Pentecost. That took place before that. Paul was the one that God hand chose. The people chose Saul. God chose what? David. This happens, this happens in Scripture. Matthias was probably a good man, but I don't believe that he was the one chosen by God to be the 12th apostle. Jesus said there will be 12 thrones that the apostles sit on, not 13. It's possible there's a 13th, but that's not what he said. But anyway, Jesus ensured that Paul met the unique requirements of an apostle. We'll look at those requirements, as I mentioned, uh, at two studies out. And Paul was called by Christ to be an apostle to the amazement of virtually everyone. Um, let me tell you something. If you haven't come to see this already in your life, especially, and again, if, you, if you're born again, perhaps you've seen this. Your calling and my calling has already or will surprise you if you're saved. And it will surprise other people, too, as God begins to do things he specifically planned for you to do in this life. You know, when I'm talking to the kids at, uh, at the correctional facility and they're unsaved, and I know they're only 16 years old and they've already committed sometimes 8, 9, 10, 12 crimes, I say, you know, Satan clearly has a plan for your life, but so does God. And God took Paul and did a 180 with him that would have surprised everybody. And he can take your life, young man or young woman, and do a 180 with it, something that would dramatically shock everybody that you would be the one God would use. Who would think that Jesus would choose a naked demoniac filled with thousands of demons to be an evangelist to the cities of the Decapolis? But that's who he chose. That's what he does. To bring it home, maybe as a mom in this room, maybe you think back when your unsaved days um, and you were nowhere near God, let's say in your teen years, in your early 20s, maybe even longer. Does it ever strike you as hard to believe, Christian mom here today, when you're sitting there teaching your kids the scriptures, telling them to follow Jesus and never taste the poisons the world wants to offer, never strike you as, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. How about a man here? Maybe you used to live for the NFL on Sundays. You have your giant shirt on, your cowboy shirt on, your jammies were even giants and cowboys or whatever. <laughs> You had the whole day planned out. I knew guys like this. I kind of was a guy like this, but I knew guys like this, that the whole Sunday, it was a routine from sunup to sundown. Of course, if they lost, Monday was a drag. But just, you know, whether it was the NASCAR race or the, you know, just the whole day, you had the barbecue grill ready, you had the friends coming over, you had the mini keg, the larger keg, all these different things. You're ready the whole day, you'd sleep in, read the paper, then fire up the grill, then get everything ready. You had this whole Sunday ritual mapped out. And then you came to Christ, 
And it might catch you as you're driving home and you got the kids in the back seat from Sunday school. How did I get here? That's Jesus. You started to care about something internal instead of temporal, right? The person that gets cancer tomorrow, the NFL games won't matter anymore. But the person that gets cancer as Jesus has something to ride it through. Heaven or, or healing doesn't matter, right? You were called from what the apostle called, uh, the apostle Peter called, all of us, what the apostle Peter called aimless conduct. That's what Peter said. He said, before salvation, we had aimless conduct. We didn't know why we did what we did. Well, everybody else does this, so I guess this is what we're supposed to do. But we're called from aimless conduct to worshiping God, to learning the scriptures, to learning from the Lord, and now teaching and modeling that to others. Family, if we have family. Others, if you just have people you influence in life. It seems surreal, doesn't it? The calling that God does in our life. Me and my wife, we never seem to be amazed that God even allowed us to be parents. You've got to make a mistake. God, you must have made a mistake. Did you see us in our teen years? Did you see us in our college? How did you make us parents? I'm sure every parent feels that way. But much less Christian parents called into full-time Christian ministry, it still amazes us. We still sometimes look in the mirror and say, is this really us? Are we really here? We all have a call, an area, maybe even a few areas that we're called to, to be used by God and to use the gifts and talents that he's ordained for our, ordained for our life. I was called to be a pastor. Hopefully you know that by now. It was revealed to me in my late 20s I'm 47 now. It was revealed to me in my late 20s. Other men saw it in my life before I did. I kind of wish they didn't see it when they saw it. I was like, please tell somebody else that. <laughs> but then God confirms it. And in my early 30s, I was still working in business, then I was ordained. A few years later, I was bivocationally pastor, and I was still scratching my head, how did all this happen? Because God can do things really quick. He turned Paul fast. From one direction to another. I'll never forget, uh, is in 1999, I was on a business trip down to Fort Lauderdale where I'd gotten saved. I hadn't been back there in a few years, but I was working for a Canadian company. And I go, and, then, and as God would have it, God does really cool. For you guys that are still in work, look for God's opportunities to open doors even when you travel. They gave us the Wednesday night off. No corporate dinner Wednesday night, free night. Guess where I was headed that Wednesday night? Straight to Calvary, Fort Lauderdale. I got a cab. Took, my, took me over there. That night, Frank Ramser, who's today the Cal Calvary Chapel pastor in Chattanooga, Tennessee, preached a message called The Call Before the Call. I was like, no! <laughs> that, I, I can only remember like three sermon titles and I have thousands I've listened to, and I can remember that one as sure as I'm sitting here, The Call Before the Call. And I'm like, am I in the call before the call? These guys said, you know, I'm thinking the whole time in the message, you ever think God's talking directly to you? He might just be. Ephesians 4.11, I recognized what it says here, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. I knew God was talking to me. I knew he was preparing my heart. But again, for all of us here, we're called to something in the kingdom of God. You may not be called to ministry, but are you fulfilling, let me ask you, are you fulfilling God's calling in your life? Are you fulfilling God's calling on your life? Have you first responded to the call of salvation? 
That's the first one. Paul couldn't be an apostle until he was first a born-again believer, right? First things first. That's our calling. Take a look at our confidence. Our confidence, same, uh, same verse 1, second half, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This is our confidence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those in Christ have a risen Savior who's conquered death. Understand that the resurrection of Jesus, hear this one, hear this one please. The resurrection of Jesus proves every other religion to be no more powerful than the lifespan of a human being. Can you, did you hear that? The resurrection of Jesus makes Islam no more powerful than the lifespan of a single human being. The resurrection of Jesus makes Hinduism no more powerful than the lifespan of a regular human being. Every other religion is only as powerful as a living human being till their death date. Jesus spans all of eternity. He's outside of time. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. Jesus came to this world as 100% human, but also as what? 100% God. You say, I don't know how that's possible. I don't know how God is three and one, and he is. I don't know how he's always been, and he always has been. He's beyond our comprehension. His name was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. He alone has the power over life and death. Listen to Jesus' own words. This is Jesus speaking, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to what Jesus says to the Apostle John. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Jesus holds the keys to hell, to heaven, to death, to life. Satan doesn't hold the keys. Muhammad doesn't hold the keys. Of course, he lies to a lot of guys thinking, if you do this, you're going to have eternal life, and they go straight to hell. Seconds after they blow something themselves and someone else up. Jesus had the keys to everything. Whatever you walked into this building needing today, Jesus has the keys to it. If you know him as your Lord and Savior, he's already delivered you from hell, but you may need deliverance from something else. But we have the confidence to know he can break any chain, solve any problem, heal any pain, save any marriage, open any door, protect any family, anoint any ministry, comfort any person. And that's just a short list of what he can do with the keys that are in his hand. That's our confidence. Next is our community. And all the brethren who are with me, verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. Our community. All who have been born again, and this, I mean, we're just looking at this greeting. This is just a foundational structure. So you, as we go through the rest of the book, you see what Paul is affirming from the Lord. All who have been saved and born again, regardless of their denomination, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, cultural differences, some who have non-doctrinal uh, style differences, are, we're all part of one community of believers. Do you have friends from other denominations? I do. I have pastor friends that we even disagree on some non-essential things. Not a big deal. We love each other as if there's no, you know, I don't believe, you know, I, 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 I am firmly believed that this is important in any worship service. Well, I don't think it is. Not, a, not an essential thing. Do we believe in the resurrection, the 
virgin birth? Do we believe in the gospel? I mean, there's essential things and there's not essential things. But we have one community of believers. But we're more than just a community. We're a family. Notice what he says. And all the brethren who are with me. We're brethren. We're brothers. We're sisters in Christ because we have the same father. You know, wherever revival breaks out, there's a revival that was breaking out last couple of years in India. And when it broke out, all the denominational walls started to come down. You know, in Burlington, North Carolina, that I was telling you, 65 churches are now involved in that same set of meetings. 65 churches. You can't get five churches to agree on anything. Because revival breaks down. We remember, you know when there's a family crisis, your cousin who won't talk to the other cousin will actually meet the hospital and talk again? Crisis breaks down walls, doesn't it? We remember, oh yeah, we're family. We can't keep a grudge. Grandma's dying, right? It has that work. You're reminded by the Lord, hey, your brothers and sisters, we have the same father. We've been adopted through Jesus himself. For the one that feels lonely, maybe even here this morning, alone, or disconnected from family, adoption into the family of God brings not only a relationship with God the Father, but you also gain a family of brothers and sisters because the family of God are all his sons and daughters. And you'll actually might have the sister relationship you never had before in the family of God. A brother relationship you never had. A mother-daughter relationship you never had. We were on the mission trip to uh, Guatemala. The team can attest, if you come Wednesday night, Emma, who is 77. I think we all felt like we gained a new grandmother. She wrote us this week and said, you all my kids. Spiritually speaking, we felt that connection. Only God can do that. Isn't it amazing when you meet Christians from around the world and you feel like you've known them your whole life? You ever had this experience? Like, wow, it feels like, I'm, well, we already know each other in eternity future. It's the community and family of God placed in us by the Spirit. That's our community that Paul references. Next, he references our comfort. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the titles of Jesus in the book of Isaiah is what? Prince of Peace. Wonderful. Counselor. But one of his titles, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the giver of peace, and it comes through and by his grace. I can tell a person about grace. You can tell a person about grace. I can tell a person about peace. You can tell a person about peace. But we can't give them grace, and we can't give them peace. Well, we can give them grace in some areas, but we can't give them God's grace. They have to receive it. I can't give a person peace, but I can express peace. I can bring peace, but I can't give it. Jesus is the giver of peace. The only one that can give it. Ephesians 2.15 says, For he himself is our peace. He is our peace. His peace is authentic. J.C. Ryle said, Peace without truth is false peace. Do you know Satan tries to give the whole world a false peace? We see it constantly. Always trying to give people a false peace. You know one of the most uh, ready examples of this to me is, every time that there's a bombing around the world, like, it seems like 2,000 armed officers come flooding in after the fact. There's nothing they can do it now. And they're all standing around like this. And then you'll have some public servant get up and say, we've secured the area. Thank you very much. <laughs> Hindsight. 
Jesus actually can pour out peace before things go wrong. And actually when things go wrong too. But he has a real peace. To receive Christ's peace though is to accept his grace. And to accept his grace is to believe on him. This is the divine comfort of the grace and peace of God that is available to us all. But we first have to believe in it and receive it. First through salvation, we believe on Christ for salvation, but then through sanctification, that's growing in Christ, we receive more of his grace and more of his peace in our life as we grow. Starts, again, with believing. I was driving the other day. I'll I'll probably talk more about it. I don't have time today. Why the Lord put this on my heart. And then um, this morning I was driving and I was listening to a pastor from another state and I turned on the radio and said, Lord put on my heart, I was, I was praying on, on Friday, first day of the next six months, and I was praying, and the Lord put on my heart, I just started praying, I believe this, Lord, I believe this, Lord, I believe this, Lord, I believe you can do this, Lord, I believe you can do this, Lord, I believe, and he just put on my heart that we would have a theme as a church for the next six months called, We Believe. The next six months, We Believe. Fill in the blank. Anything you can think of, if you know that you need it in your life and you know that God is the only one who can do it, we believe. Whatever it is, we believe that this marriage can be restored. We believe that this prodigal can come home. We believe that so-and-so can be healed. We believe that God can do immeasurably more. We believe that God can give this person a job. You name it, whatever it is. He put that on my heart. So then I turn on the radio, and I don't normally turn on the radio. I usually listen to some praise and worship. Turn on the radio. This pastor, he mentioned the word believe like six times, and then the program ended. And I was like, Lord said, okay. That's good confirmation for me. We'll talk more about it, but I want to just throw that in there. Because we're comforted, by the way, when we start to believe. You start believing God, you'll start feeling comfort you've never felt before. This, coming to wrapping this up, our conversion, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us, verse 4, from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Could this statement be any clearer? Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. What a statement by Paul. It's as the great hymn writer Robert Lowry wrote in the 1800s, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That hymn's been around a long time now. And it mirrors these words that Paul is speaking of. If being religious could save Paul, Paul would not have needed Jesus. He was passionately religious. Wouldn't you agree? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Just like Nicodemus, as we looked at in John 3 a few weeks ago. No, religion wasn't it. Only because Jesus gave his own sinless body and blood could we and can we be rescued from this evil age, from the evil in our own hearts, from the curse of evil, which is death and the judgment to come. That's what Paul's stating here. Because Jesus came, we can have salvation. And no other thing, Galatians. Circumcision is not going to save you. Circumcision of the heart saves you. And only Jesus can do that. 
Paul mentions here the will of God. He says, according to the will of our God and Father. The will of God. Our conversion came through the one who came from heaven who said to his Father just before the cross, thy will be done. Didn't he? Paul knows this. This is what he's emphasizing. Salvation. Our conversion is only through Jesus. Which brings us to our last point here. Because of our conversion, we have a confession. In verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't you agree that Jesus is worthy of glory forever and ever? Guess what? He's going to receive it forever and ever. Even people that don't think he's worthy, they're irrelevant because Jesus is going to receive worship and glory forever and ever and ever. As we saw last week in the close of Luke 24, and as the entire host of heaven says, thousands and thousands upon thousands proclaim in Revelation 5.12, he is worthy. He's worthy. He's going to receive glory and honor. The Bible says in Philippians 2.11 that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not just highly suggested. I said to every tongue, should confess. What if I choose not to? Well, there's a verse for that too. Almost the same verse. A little different, but very similar verse. Revelation 14, 11. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Paul wrote both those verses. Everyone will confess this truth and glorify God at least one time. Everyone will glorify Jesus and confess him as Lord at least once. At least once. But if you only do it once, that means you're standing before the great white throne judgment, which is not a place you ever want to see. Revelation chapter 20. With, I would say, no, yeah, once still matter. Once still make, because in heaven, we'll keep on doing this. The thief on the cross, he did it once on earth, but he'll do it millions and thousands and trillions of times in heaven, right? But if you only do it once, that means you're standing at the great white throne and you do not want to go to that throne. You want to end up at the judgment seat of Christ, which is for those who have put their faith and trust in him. But if you love Jesus and you've already asked him to save you and cleanse you from sin, and you've decided to follow him both now and right on into heaven, well, this confession of he's worthy, God, I give you glory, this confession of him being worthy is your perpetual prayer. It's your perpetual praise. And for you and me, it's just practicing for the future. It's just practicing for heaven. This is what we'll be doing in heaven. We see it in Revelation 5. If you can pray this prayer now, you'll be praying it for all eternity. You're worthy. Let me close with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. And I was listening to this sound this morning. I was, uh, it was still raining. I was on, we have a screened-in porch. I was sitting on the back screened-in porch, reading my Bible, just talking to the Lord, and I had this little choir behind me of birds. They didn't care it was raining today, by the way. They were singing like it was as sunny as could be. Maybe they were like, lots of worms today. We're going to eat good. I don't know what they were thinking. They were happy, and they make me happy. Because they just singing away. 
And I had already, uh, anyway, I wanted to read you this quote. Spurgeon said this, great pastor from London in the 1800s. He said, look at the very birds on the earth, how they shame us. Dear little creatures, if you watch them when they are singing, you will sometimes wonder how so much sound can come out of such a diminutive body. How they throw their whole selves into music and seem to melt themselves away in song. How the wing vibrates, the throat pulsates, and every part of their body rejoices to assist the strain. This is the way in which we ought to praise God. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air, didn't he? He said it. He said, look at them. You can learn a lot from them. If everyone calls you a bird brain, that's not a bad thing in this sense, right? <laughs> but we, like the Galatians, we have this reminder from God. Let's remember this morning with genuine praise and obedience that everything really good is from him. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we acknowledge this morning these reminders are not from Paul. He was a man like us. But these reminders, Lord, are from you. And Lord, it's our desire to not be misled. The Galatians may have been misled by another gospel, but we can be misled by our flesh, our feelings, uh, pleasures, things we're attracted to. But Lord, we want to reject and cast aside anything that would keep us from your salvation, from your peace, from your grace, and from worshiping you and giving you our lives and the glory that is due your name. This is our desire. And Lord, we pray that not only this study today, but in the coming weeks and months, Lord, you would use this to just stir us, a fire within us to become more and more surrendered to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.